The second lecture, as I hinted at the end of the last one, uh, gets down to the nuts and bolts a little more. Um, and its title is Working Backwards, Guessing Intentions from Results. All too often, the binding historian is presented only with, as it were, a fait accompli in the shape of a bound book, with little or no supporting evidence in the form of ownership inscription, date, or other documentary references. Initially, the only option open to him or her is to record simply and accurately what is there, and the process of description is one which still needs a lot of careful consideration, as I hope will become evident in my last lecture. I will only say here that by analyzing in the order of construction the steps taken by the binder to produce the binding under examination, not only are you obliged to describe each step in some detail, but you may also be able to arrive at some idea of why the various steps have been taken. Binders are, contrary to popular opinion, somewhat logical creatures very often. It is certainly impossible to examine books in this way without making comparisons with other books seen and constructing hypotheses to explain what has been seen. It may then be that these hypotheses will suggest where further research into archival and other documentary sources might be directed. In the past three years, I've come across a number of unusual bindings, spanning some 200 years, which do not fit into any of the categories of binding with which I was already familiar. My suggested explanation for these bindings would appear to give them a role somewhat akin to the temporary publisher's bindings, which became increasingly common towards the end of the 18th century though I have as yet been able to locate only one contemporary reference or near-contemporary reference to support this theory from printed or documentary sources. However, <clears throat> no other reason for their being bound the way they are seems to be as satisfactory, and they will serve as an example of how I think it is possible to draw conclusions from surviving bindings about the circumstances of their manufacture. If my theory is correct, the ramifications so far as the study of the bindings executed on books from countries other than that in which they were bound, or at least in from cities other than the city in which they were printed, um, will, in structural terms at least, be of some importance. It will confuse life horribly. Um, if it ever proves possible to define reliable regional variations in structure, then it may also prove possible to deduce from fully bound books that they once existed in the intermediary stage suggested by this group of books. If nothing else, they could explain the apparent inconsistencies of structure, that is, single bindings containing elements from different structural traditions, which at the moment serve only to confuse the otherwise effective categorization of bindings into structural and national types. The reason that these bindings have not, so far as I'm aware, uh, been recognized as being significant before now is either that they resemble externally or other more conventional bindings and have simply been classed with them, or why they have no covers at all, that they have not been recognized as bindings and have been simply put on one side and just ignored as eccentricities which defy sensible categorization. I will describe them in the order in which I saw them and thus follow the process by which I arrived at the conclusions which I now draw from them. I came across the first example at Blickling Hall in Norfolk, the library of which you saw on a slide earlier on, which houses the collection of the 18th century scholar and bibliophile Sir Richard Ellis. This in itself is important in that Ellis died in 1742 and we know that books were not, with a very few obvious exceptions, added after his death, nor was anything else done to them until a few repairs were carried out in very recent years and losses from the library have been equally small, no more than perhaps a dozen in all. Important ones, but no more than a dozen. This means that the, library, the material in the library is reliable, and that all the bindings must predate his death, or at least be contemporary with his death, that is, bindings commissioned but not completed before he died. Could I have the lights, please? Okay. 
The undisturbed nature of the library is evidenced by the survival in a chest of three books still in their unbound sheets. Um, these have their own interest, of course, but have little to offer the binding historian beyond showing, as it were, the raw material from which he would be working. With them, however, was a copy of Leclerc's Histoire des Provinces Unies des Pays-Bas, printed in Amsterdam in two volumes in 1723, both of which were only partially bound. That is to say they had end leaves, including marble paper, and had been sewn, but had had no further work done on them, not even to the extent of their being glued on the spines and their edges ploughed. Associated with them was a wrapper of printer's waste. My immediate reaction was to guess quite simply that their binding had, for some reason unknown, been abandoned halfway through, <clears throat> perhaps because of Ellis's death, since they are in exactly the state in which you would expect to find books of that period which were destined to be bound in leather-covered, stiff boards, that is to say, a perfectly conventional calf binding. It did not occur to me, having never seen any other books in a similar state from this period, or indeed any other period except actually in a workshop, that they might have been intended as some form of intermediary step in the selling stroke bookbinding process. <clears throat> it is only when you see other examples of a binding type that it becomes possible to be sure that you're not dealing with a one-off freak. This, of course, has serious implications for the study of any type of binding where the survival rate is likely to be extremely low as with 16th century school books, for instance, as one can never be sure just how typical what you have before you may once have been. Given the continuing destruction of so much of the evidence in the interests of repair and rebinding, especially where the books are concerned, books concerned are seen as nothing very special, a phrase I've heard often mentioned by librarians in defense of rebinding, this situation is getting worse day by day. It is only the survival in large numbers which tells us what was typical. Uh, a few examples are never going to tell us that. The second example, in the possession of the Chapin Library of Williamstown, is exactly 200 years older, and it may at first sight appear to be far-fetched to make any connection between them. 1523 to 1723 is a long stretch. Initially, I certainly did not make any connection, certainly, but I now think that they are, in fact, quite closely related. The book in question is a copy of Bishop Fisher's Assertio of 1523, printed in Antwerp and bound in limp vellum with a four-edged flap and a brass clasp, and as such would not ex immediately attract further attention, at least so far as its binding was concerned. It's a nice limp vellum binding with a flap and a nice brass clasp. Wonderful, but no more than that, maybe. Um, however, the wrapper is held to the text block by gut tackets. That is to say, the book is sewn as one operation, the cover is attached by slipping lengths of gut underneath the sewing supports, pushing them through the spine of the cover and holding the two together by these means. And this is something of a stationary binder's technique, and whilst by no means unknown in the printed book field, it is unusual enough to invite further examination. It is inside the cover, however, that the distinctive features of this book are revealed. The slips, the extremities of the double cords upon which the book is sewn and which are primarily intended to attach the text block to its cover, do not perform any useful function in this binding, as the tackets make the connection between the supports and the cover without the slips being laced through the cover. This is standard practice for account book bindings of the same period, which use a very similar structure. However, not only have they been left intact, some four or five centimetres long, but along the back joint, which is what you're looking at on the screen, they end in loops. These loops are significant, as they show that the text block, once sewn, was simply unhooked from its continental-style sewing frame. You may have noticed that in the slide earlier on, a sewing frame with little hooks to hook the cords over, and nothing further has been done to them. More significantly, the slips on the front joint are whipped together with thread to prevent them unravelling, a measure which indicates an intention to preserve them intact. 
It is not so much, therefore, as a case of an unfinished binding as of an arrested binding, put, as it were, into mothballs, and this is where the whipped ends of the slips are so important, in expectation of some continuation of the binding process at a later date. <clears throat> the vellum cover can, therefore, be seen as a wrapper, its temporary status indicated by the fact that it is cut flush with the text block and has no turnings, something not so often found on more conventional and highly finished limp vellum bindings. We'll see more of this in the last lecture. It was quite clearly added as something additional to the rest of the forwarding process, though when exactly it is impossible to say, except that there is no reason to think that it is not more or less contemporary. The text block was forwarded quite carefully and was given end papers reinforced with vellum guards. In fact, you cannot see the end paper at the front has been torn out. The end paper at the back is still preserved within this fold of vellum, the guard, which you can see here. And that is very much as you might expect to find, not only on a, in convention, conventional limp vellum binding, but also in stiff-boarded, leather-covered binding. The edges were trimmed or ploughed, again as for a conventional binding, but no attempt has been made either to round or back the, the text block. <clears throat> the use of cords also carries with it some indication of intention. Cord is not a natural sewing support material to use on limp vellum binding though it is occasionally found, as it does not work when laced through vellum in the way that it would in a normal limp vellum binding, where a small hole is used to pinch a soft alum toward support and thus hold it in place. One would, however, expect to find cords used to sew a book which was to have wooden or paste boards, stiff boards, that is, especially in northern European countries, the book was printed in Antwerp, and where cords were much more commonly used in the early 16th century than elsewhere in Europe, particularly in association with Germanic or German-speaking countries. The book therefore presents something of an anomaly, having end papers and a sewing structure typical of a book in stiff boards, yet having added to it a limp cover. If you take away the limp cover, the sewn text block looks as if it were intended for a stiff board binding, and thus has more than a little in common with the Amsterdam imprints described earlier on. Reassurance that the Chapin Library Assertio was not a freak was found in the library just up the road from here of the Union Theological Seminary which has a Cologne imprint of 1542 in a very similar binding. However, whilst it has the same loops on the double cords at the back joint, indicating incidentally that the binders of both volumes started to sew the books from the front, and the ends of the slips at the front joint are also whipped with cord, or were whipped, they've rather broken apart now, but you can see the thread used, the vellum wrapper, which again is tacketed to the sewing supports, is of much poorer quality. It is cut flush with all three cut edges of the text block. There is no four-edge flap or clasp on this one, and it has no ties either. It has a stitched flay hole clearly visible in the back half of the wrapper and is an uneven, flanky, and not very presentable piece of skin. Yet the book is sewn very carefully, and the cut ends of the slips are, or were, neatly whipped with thread. It is quite evident that cover and structure do not tally, and that the cover has the appearance of something cheap and temporary, to the extent, in fact, of suggesting by comparison that the Assertio cover was, has pretensions to permanence, perhaps being added at a slightly later date simply as a more economical alternative to stiff boards and leather. A much later book in the Taylor Library in Oxford, Ratisbon 1716, seems to offer something similar, but without the vellum wrapper. In this case, the book is sewn on two alum toward supports, with the pinholes used to attach the supports to a sewing frame clearly visible. Whilst it does have end papers, it has not and quite definitely never has had any form of protective wrapper. It does, though, have a definite similarity to a series of books dating from the 16th to the 18th centuries in limp vellum bindings sewn on stiff, broad, tawed, or sometimes tan supports, which would be better suited to stiff board bindings and which are not really suitable for limp bindings. 
just one example here, can be found on a Venice imprint of 1547, sewn on two split alum tord strap-type thongs, which you can see clearly in the slide. The leather on the spine is a 19th century edition put on to enable uh, a title to be tooled on it. And once again, a cut flush wrapper has been used, um, with a four-edge flap in this case, to protect the sewn text block. It is the inappropriate combination of sewing support and covering material, as well as the lack of turn-ins, which suggests that the wrapper is a temporary expedient. The other important point about these particular sewing supports on an Italian imprint of this period is that they are exactly identical to the sort of supports you will find laced into the wooden boards of contemporary Italian wooden-boarded books. Um, You could, as it were, take this wrapper off and put wooden boards on without any difficulty at all. It is instructive to compare this binding, the one you've just seen, with a superficially similar wrapper around a Leiden imprint of 1664 from Blickling Hall. The sofa is telling me which it is. In this case, however, the gatherings are attached to the cover directly by means of a technique known as long stitch. You can see at at head and tail there are panels containing thread. The thread has disappeared at the tail end of the spine, but the same thread here is coming through the center of each gathering, through the spine of the cover, and then back into it again, attaching gatherings to wrapper in one movement. Whilst it is certainly a cheap form of binding, and we are here perhaps talking about cheap sorts of binding, and quite possibly also intended only as a temporary measure, it is all of a piece, and there is no way in which the cover cover can be removed from the sewing structure without destroying the sewing. Its structure, therefore, makes it entirely different in kind from those bindings in which cover and sewing structure can be separated without damage to either, and that is an important distinction to make. Externally, they may appear to have similarities, and there are, of course, similarities, but their purpose and nature is entirely different. A further example of the same type of wrapper, which relates more closely to the Chapin and Union Union theological bindings, appears on a, a Deventer imprint of 1557. Here, as in other examples already described, the cut flush wrapper with a four-edge flap is held to the sewing structure by tackets and also has a a nicely worked brass clasp, as in the uh, Fisher Assertio. And the slips are not laced through the cover. Um, You can see the sewing supports here, cord, cut off at the joint, and then this is the end of one of the tackets holding the cover to the sewing structure. We have, therefore, in these last three examples, three externally similar bindings which each differ significantly in structure from the others. And therefore, to bracket them all together, as I hope will become evident by the time we get to the the last lecture, is confusing, to say the least, and it it misses the point. My final example of these uh, incompleted bindings brings us back to the first, whilst providing another example of slips forming uncut loops on the back joint with the cut ends of the slips along the front joint whipped with thread, as you can see quite clearly. It is a copy of a plantain-printed folio Bible of 1624, which has been given end papers with vellum manuscript guards, sewn, rounded, backed, ploughed, and had the spine line between the supports and at head and tail with strips of printed waste. I'm afraid I've not been able to identify this waste, um, but obviously that may be a significant identification to make. It has never had end bands, boards, or any form of covering, and the monogram pasted to the spine containing the initials L, P, and N and which must, I think, date from the first half of the 17th century, indicates that the book was accepted into a collection in this state at an early date. It has been taken three stages further in the forwarding process, ploughing, backing, and lining, than the first example I have described, but otherwise represents a similar stage in production. Two drawings in Dirk de Bray's manual of 1658 show sewn text blocks in a similar state, 
one on the right of the screen here being glued up prior to lining the spine. Um, the book on the right splayed out on the bench in a rather dangerous way. Um, and the other with the spine lined in the center of the, the bench on the screen, um, ready to have the boards attached, which is exactly the state in which the Plantin Bible still remains. On the left-hand side, you have the binder actually lacing a wooden board on, but this text block here is exactly what that Plantin Bible is. The existence of a book in this state must show at least an interruption of the binding process, and then one asks whether it is more likely that a binding should be abandoned at this stage or that the intention was to produce a ready-sewn book for sale or transport, leaving the choice of board and covering materials to the customer. The whipped ends of the slips are again important clues here, and taken with the other books described above, make, I believe, the second answer the more likely one. To sum up, therefore, we have a scattered collection of books dating from 1523 to 1723, which have all been quite carefully sewn, and which either have then been left unprotected it is perhaps not insignificant that this applies to the three later examples, or have been given vellum wrappers. One further detail, and an important detail, should also be noted. Sir Richard Ellis's Histoire des Provence Unies has associated with it, indeed wrapped around the books when I found them in a chest at the Blickling Library, two discarded sheets of the Lord's protest on the motion to address His Majesty to settle £100,000 per annum on the Prince of Wales, lucky man, uh, printed in London in 1737 by T. Timms and sold by the booksellers of London and Westminster, and therefore presumably available to any one of those booksellers. The sheet wrapped around the first volume bears an inscription, Histoire des Provinces Unies, tome 1 par Monsieur Leclerc, avec Fig, folio 1723, an inscription that could well be written by a Frenchman as by an, or a French-speaking person as by an English bookseller possibly written in the same hand as the title written on the printed waste wrapping of one of the volumes still in sheets, and presumably that of the bookseller who supplied them to Ellis. This indicates that Ellis received the two partially bound volumes from the bookseller in that form, and the makeup of the end papers, which are of a type not common in England, further suggests that the English bookseller, the waste, is from a London imprint, at least a bookseller working in England. He may well have been foreign, and quite possibly Dutch, um, also received the books in this form. If this is so, then the books were given end papers and sewn prior to export, and this binding, such as it is, therefore represents an early form of publishers' or booksellers' binding, intended to give some protection to the printed sheets and keep them in order, whilst presumably incurring neither the import duty on bound books entering England, nor the extra cost of transport resulting from the weight of the boards and leather. In this connection, it is worth remembering that many of the books from the Palatine Library, looted from Heidelberg in 1623, were stripped of their bindings to save weight when transporting them to Italy, which is clear proof that the weight of the binding was an important consideration in terms of transport costs, and that the cost of the binding was not considered too great to make this uneconomic. There are many examples, in fact, of text blocks which retain early sewing structures in later coverings, victims in Britain at least of a combination of import taxes on these unbound books, taste in collecting, and the cost of transport. Some of the evidence offered by these books can be quite complex, as another book from the Library of Sir Richard Ellis at Blickling Hall will show, but I think it does link into this, uh, these earlier books we've been looking at. It is a Granada imprint of 1545 in what is quite clearly a Spanish limp vellum binding, which one would have no reason to believe was not exactly contemporary with the book. A closer examination inside the cover, however, um, reveals the use of rolled alum toward sewing supports, which have not only been used as the structure, but have been neatly cut away along the joint. Um, you can see here, 
closely, a little roll of skin has been made used to form the core of the sewing structure, the sewing support, and it has been sliced with a knife at the joint. It is not accidental, it is entirely done on purpose. And the alum tord thongs, which in fact attach the cover to the text block, which is what you see on the outside of the binding, has simply been laced under two of these truncated supports and in the center stabbed through the joints themselves. You can see here, quite clear, just punched through the text block. And are not part of the sewing structure at all. It is quite clear, therefore, that the book was sewn without any intention of attaching this cover to it, though it bears no indication of any other covering ever having been wrapped around it. The thickness of the rolled support suggests that they were never intended for a limp binding. They're simply too thick to pull through a hole in vellum. Viewed in isolation, this binding would perhaps suggest a cheap recovering of a damaged book, and there are plenty of examples of that around uh, to match it with. But in the light of the other examples I have described, and the fact that both the cover and the date of printing seem to be so close together, or potentially so close together, um, in the light of this, one is prompted to ask whether, in fact, the first binding did nothing more than sew the book onto the rolled alum tord supports, and that the vellum cover was added as a cheap expedient, and the then redundant slips sliced off. In the absence of other evidence, the answer can only be guessed at, but there is a structural inconsistency here which requires explanation. <clears throat> uh, the only thing that one can be sure of is that the binding as it now stands is not the result of a single process, and if nothing else were to indicate that, the very fact of two uh, superimposed layers of spine lining would tell you this, that there's been an additional layer added to the book. Moving back to Fisher's Assertio, the Chapin Library book, it is more than tempting to interpret the evidence of the binding in the same way as for the Ellis Histoire des Provinces Unies. It is known that binders in the early days of printing had problems in making sure that all the sheets of books sent across Europe would arrive at their destinations intact and complete. Yet the books had to be sent in sheets to save the expense of transporting and making the bindings, of particular importance when so many books were bound in thick wooden boards. By simply sewing the books, the problem of losing loose sheets would be avoided, yet the weight gain and cost would remain minimal. When the books were received, either by a bookseller or by the eventual purchaser, it would be a simple matter to add a vellum wrapper, if indeed it did not already have one, of whatever quality, with or without clasp, to give temporary or long-term protection to the sewn sheets. Then, just as many 18th-century paper-covered publishers' bindings have been preserved because their original owners chose not to have them rebound, so a few examples have also been preserved of this earlier manifestation of the type. They are, however, bindings which by definition are unlikely to remain intact, and the great majority, if indeed there were many more, must have been obscured, if not destroyed, by further binding. Even so, I wonder how many more do in fact lie unrecognized in rare book collections around the world. And in fact, shortly before I gave the, the first series of the Rosenbach lectures, I, recently, I had brought to my attention three further examples of books sewn on double cords, preserving the loops along the back joint, and now in limp vellum covers. They are all on copies of sermons by Petrus de Palud, printed in Antwerp in 1572 and bought by a Dutch Catholic priest, Jacob Bijk, who died in 1599. His library, now in the University Library in Amsterdam, has been little disturbed since his death, and these volumes are described in his manuscript catalogue as being bound in membranes. The main difference between these and the binding on the Chapin Library Assertio is that the slips are laced through the cover. This might be taken as indicating a more permanent binding, as reflecting... Uh, conventional limp vellum binding structures. But the very fact that the loops have been left intact 
thus necessitating pulling a large lump, as it were, of thread through the large holes in the vellum cover, suggests a less than happy marriage between cover and sewing structure. The use of cords in limp vellum bindings remains very much the exception, and I believe that these three books also fit into the same category as those I've described before. The only documentary reference that I know of to anything similar is a manuscript copy of a list of recommended prices for bookbinding dated 14 May 1744, which has a column giving prices for sewing and folding, coming after entries giving prices for calf and sheepskin bindings. I wonder if this is not a reference to these unfinished bindings. Certainly the Leclerc Histoire des Provinces Unies at Blickling would come into this category, sewn as it is two sheets at a time, another pricing category offered by this list, and interesting to see that it is so, that two on and one on sewing were offered as alternatives in this price list. The two on obviously being cheaper. It is interesting to note that the list was compiled in consideration of the exorbitant prices that leather now bears by the scarceness of the commodity. Leaving that expense to someone else, that is to say the purchaser of the book or a, a bookseller further down the chain, uh, would explain why it was worth quoting prices for the mere sewing of books, whilst the distinction between one-on, two-on and common sewing indicates that sewing structures suitable for books bound in boards were being described, rather than pamphlets or other ephemeral bindings without boards. Changing a little here, but something again, I think, which relates. A three-volume collection of duodecimo Amsterdam-printed editions of the works of Francis Bacon, which all date from the second half of the 17th century, appears to have a rather different story to tell, but with similarities. The different texts were produced by a variety of booksellers, so one is not dealing with a straightforward publisher's binding, but the bindings are of interest. They are sewn on four single cords, rounded and backed, and laced into pulp boards. The boards are scored across to mark up for lacing in, in a very English manner, but once the boards were laced on, the binding process was abandoned. The edges are not trimmed, some of the texts remaining uncut, and the boards are only roughly cut to the size of the folded sheets and do not even match each other in size within each volume, let alone between the, the three volumes. There is positively no evidence of any leather or other permanent covering having been put onto the books, which are therefore in exactly the state in which you would expect to find them at a midway point in the normal fording of a leather-covered stiff board binding. They subsequently had a piece of coarse parchment pasted across the spine and onto the back edge of the boards, not turned in either at head or tail, and quite clearly not put on with any pretensions towards elegance or permanence, and quite possibly not part of the original binder's work. It's nowhere near as neatly done as the rest of the construction of the books. Written across the second panel from the head of the volumes are manuscript titles, written in a hand which dates from the end of the 17th or beginning of the 18th century. The front flyleaves also bear the early, but sadly undated, ownership inscription of one Johannes Holland. Can the state of these three volumes be explained? They are certainly unusual, but if they do represent some intermediary and essentially temporary stage in the bookselling process, then the survival of any examples is likely to be rare. They differ in kind from the books described before in having stiff boards, and the scoring of the boards to mark up for lacing in does suggest an English binder. Uh, though I would want to know a great deal more about Dutch binding practice in order to be confident in localizing that technique. If this supposition is correct, and it is obviously no more than supposition at this point, then they could be examples of a collected set of the works of Francis Bacon, put together by a bookseller working in England, though quite possibly Dutch, and offered for sale, leaving to the eventual customer the choice and expense of the leather covering, whether it be goat, calf, or sheep, and the tooling, whether it be fine, libound, I find it tooled all over or just simply tooled in blind, whatever 
was selected. The bindings, possibly with their parchment spines, would therefore serve to hold the books together and allow them to be examined by potential customers with little risk of damage. If all these bindings do indicate some form of intermediate stage used by booksellers to protect their stock, then it does have an interesting and slightly alarming implication so far as the history of binding structures is concerned. It would be quite possible to have bindings which were forded up to or including the attachment of boards by one binder in one country and then finished off by another binder, possibly in a different country, and finally even tooled by a third craftsman. This will vastly complicate the job of placing bindings in one or another country and makes all the more necessary the identification of at least national techniques in binding. Even the half-finished bindings on the collected works of Bacon has a distinguishing feature apart from the score marks on the boards, which immediately sets them apart from many other books, namely the different angles at which the slips are laced into the boards. The topmost slip on the front board, which you're looking at on the screen, and the bottommost on the back are laced in at the opposite angle to the other three slips in each board, creating a symmetry between the two boards, which shows that the difference is more than accidental. And I've found in the course of my work that the actual method of lacing boards on is subject to an immense degree of variety. The different binders are quite clearly doing different things, lacing through the slips at right angles to the board, parallel to the boards, angled back from the boards, lacing through two holes, three holes, four holes, following different patterns of threading through the three or four holes and so on. So there is an immense scope for identification within even such a simple technique. Such division of the binding of books between different workshops, and that is one of the ways in which one could possibly do it, may provide an explanation for the unfamiliar structural techniques, which I've also found sometimes on imported books. Where such unusual techniques are to be found on books printed and first bound in one country, then I think one may also legitimately look for the work of an immigrant binder by identifying particular techniques, to placing them in different countries, and then finding them located together in one country. There is a, an incongruity to reconcile, if you like. At Petworth House in Sussex, there is a copy of Pryor's Poems on Several Occasions of 1718 in an unmistakably English and contemporary gilt blue Morocco binding. There is no question of that. However, on the inside of each board, there is a paste-down of German brocat papier. This in itself would not be entirely surprising, as such papers were used not only throughout Europe, but as I've already mentioned, even in Persia. But the construction of the end papers is a surprise on an English binding. The decorated paper is seen only on the boards, the facing flyleaf being a plain white laid paper. This is not, as might first be thought, the result of the depredations of a collector of decorated paper, as the decorated paper was folded only to form a stub on the outside. The fold thus formed was sewn through, and then both stub and full leaf were pasted back onto the surface of the board. It is very much a continental practice, and I've seen it used on French, Dutch, German, Scandinavian, and Italian books, but only exceptionally on English books. The book being printed in England is most definitely not imported, of course, but can the end papers be taken to indicate a foreign craftsman working in England? There would certainly have been candidates, possibly a Huguenot, many of whom were working in England at this time. The reference earlier in the lecture to bookbinders' price lists suggests a degree of organisation in the trade which should not come as a surprise when one thinks of the numbers of books for which bindings were required in the 17th and 18th centuries. I will look at some of the more doubtful practices which emerged from such attempts to regulate the trade in my next lecture, but I would now like to look briefly at what might be thought of as a most obscure structural detail, but which I, does, I do think does indicate a degree of involvement by the booksellers in the preparation of the text block for sewing. The investigation is prompted by nothing more remarkable than unused saw cuts across the spines of certain books. 
I will look at the history of sewing on recessed sewing supports in a little more detail in my next lecture, and will say now only that the technique became increasingly popular in England in the 17th century. Um, and as the economies it offered uh, became evident, it was increasingly associated with the cheaper end of the market. As a result, it was used in the 18th century until its reintroduction in the 1760s, <clears throat> for what I believe were primarily aesthetic reasons, on only the very cheapest bound books of all, school books, devotional works, and things of that sort, and was normally associated with two-on sewing and coverings of sheepskin, canvas, or paper, all again in themselves indications of economy. Increasingly, I've been finding examples of books sewn on recessed supports where not all the recesses cut across the spine have been used. The centre of the five slots here is left empty. Head and tail used for the cattle stitches. These two used for the supports, the centre one empty. Usually, the outer recesses have thongs laid in them and sewn around, but the central ones are empty, two in this case, or have unsewn thongs sometimes laid in them after the book was sewn, presumably to reinforce the spine perhaps, but also to fill in the recesses. Many other examples, and this is a large number of other examples in my experience, have a double recess at each end of the spine, beyond the recesses used for the sewing supports, but only one of which is used, and that for the kettle stitches. And what you have here is a, a recessed cord as a sewing support, and two further slots, that one used for the kettle stitch, this one left empty. And I've seen that repeated over and over again in books of the latter part of the 17th century in England. These unused recesses interest me because the last thing one would expect to find in any commercial operation is unnecessary work, especially where it serves no practical purpose and is, in any case, invisible when the books are covered. It suggests some form of standardized text block preparation, and after which some cheaper option is elected for. In the 18th century, one comes across another group of books which sometimes show similar unused saw cuts, and these are mostly on cheap educational or devotional works again. Typically, they are bound in what is, was known then as the common manner, described by the stationer and bookseller Sylvanus Cherm when advertising his superior-sewn school books in the following terms. It has long been a matter of complaint that the books used in schools, which ought rather to be bound stronger than common to bear the rough usage of children, are in general worse bound than other books and liable sooner to be pulled to pieces, which is wholly owing to the method practiced in binding them. It is called punched or stabbed binding and is done as follows. The sheets being folded into a book, two holes are punched through them near the back, and a string drawn through each hole into the pasteboard sides is the chief fastening. The books bound this way are made stiff to open at first in order to appear strong, but that is mere deception. What he is describing is the technique known from the 16th century as stitching and always associated with the cheapest and most ephemeral publications. What Cher, or bindings, I should say as well, what Cherm and his possible successor, George Hertzfield, were trying to do was to produce simply more durable books by sewing them rather than stitching or stabbing the leaves together. I have examined one of Hertzfield's books and found that it was sewn on four cords, uh, though only two of them were actually laced into the boards, another of the varieties of board attachment which one will find. But often, such cheaply sewn books, sometimes covered in a coarse canvas, were sewn on only two recessed supports, often of alum toward skin and are externally, externally very similar to books bound in the common manner, that is to say the stitched bindings. And what you see on the screen is three canvas bindings of the 1760s and 70s, bound in canvas, and two of them are sewn and one is stitched. And from just simply looking at them from the outside, it is impossible to tell which is which, which is interesting in itself. It implies that something a little deceptive may be intended. 
What one often finds, however, is that the stabbed examples also have saw cuts across the spine, showing that the text blocks had been prepared for sewing, but at some point the cheaper structural option was chosen. It would appear, therefore, that such text blocks were being prepared for sewing as a standard procedure, and that the actual choice of structure, sewn or stabbed, was being made subsequently, possibly by a retail bookseller further down the chain. This idea gains further support from a paper-covered example which contains two texts. <clears throat> Edmund Gibson, Serious Advice to Persons Who Have Been Sick, London, 1752, and The Christian Monitor, London, 1753, each one published by a different bookseller, W. Johnston and John Beecroft, respectively. The saw cuts across the spine folds, however, line up across both texts, so that the decision to make them is unlikely to have been taken by either of these booksellers, but by presumably by someone further down the chain who put the two texts together. One can only assume, given the number of times that this confusion of techniques turns up, that we are not dealing with the work of a single binder who changed his mind about sewing the book after making the saw cuts, but with perhaps a bookseller carrying out the preparatory forwarding steps, folding and sawing in, whilst leaving the subsequent steps in response to demand. Certainly sawing in is a process amenable to an elementary form of mass production. Now, it takes very little longer to saw in a dozen copies at once rather than a single copy, and it does imply a concern, as shown by both Cherm and Newbury, the publisher Newbury, on the part of the bookseller, that the books should be sewn. Uh, they're being prepared for it, and that is that implication. The fact that subsequently someone else, the third link in the chain, as it were, ignored these preparatory steps in favour of something much cheaper and cruder gives some indication of the effects of competition and where economies could be made. An advertisement at the back of uh, Beecroft's Christian Monitor, for instance, describes um, the prices for bound volumes at sixpence and those stitched at fourpence. Um, a 30% difference, 33% difference in price, according to the different structures, and uh, obviously an a significant difference in price in terms of selling the books. The most important point to be drawn out of this discussion, however, is how apparently unimportant structural features can lead one into wider questions of the practices and attitudes within the book trade. Easily ignored, but significant, or potentially very significant. I will give one final example of this type of work in the hopes that someone one day will have an explanation for it which they can offer evidence for. I have noticed on the spine folds of a number of German and Dutch stitched pamphlets a series of angled or crossed, incised or impressed lines which can have nothing to do with any sewing structure. And you see these have just been scored in with a bone fold or something of that sort. Um, they're on pamphlets or publications which have been already stitched with thread. So the Scoring on the spine has nothing to do with the way in which they are held together. My theory, for what it is worth, is that this is an early form of register, allowing the folded gatherings to be ordered quickly and easily without further reference to the signatures. It was probably done as the, at the same time as the stitching, several copies at a time, and might be taken to indicate an intention that such publications should be rebound at some later date. And this was simply to make the work easier when the thread was cut the, set, the gathering separated, and then to make sure that they were in the right order when the book was sewn, a glance at the spine would tell you, just like the printed registers on later books, um, late 19th, early 20th century books. How many examples of this practice and others like it remain hidden in bound volumes or are destroyed in rebinding, we shall never know. But there are many books which retain such clues to the circumstances of their progression from printer to customer. And it is from these clues that we today have to work backwards to try to find the explanations. Thank you.